Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Today we have the second part of our special series on Dr. Anthony Fauci. Fauci left the NIH in December after 54 years there. He has worked in seven U.S. administrations, and he's been a major force in the fight against infectious diseases. We sat down with him to find out what has driven Anthony Fauci all these years. It turns out it all starts and ends with his patients. So let's just go back a little bit. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing and why you decided you were going to be a doctor. My father uh, was a pharmacist, but back then, you know, I was, I'm 82 years old. So I was born in 1940, right before the World War. I went to elementary school in the late 40s, early 50s. I went to high school in the 50s. At that time, the pharmacies were sort of the neighborhood doctor's office. They were referred to as doc when you go into a pharmacy. And people who either didn't have a doctor or who couldn't afford to a doctor would come in and talk to my father about everything from family problems to psychological issues. So he was kind of like the triage family doc of the neighborhood. And he never worried about, you know, making money out of the pharmacy. In fact, we barely were able to keep things together if I hadn't won scholarships to high school and college and medical school. So as a child and as you grew up, you observed your father at his pharmacy. What did you experience then? Well, I saw what someone who cares about someone, what impact that has on the person. When someone would come in to my father's drugstore, not to buy you know, an aspirin or to buy a cosmetic or the other things that are sold in pharmacies, but came in with a problem. And my father would call them into the back uh, of the store where he makes, where he was mixing, compounding. A lot of the prescriptions back then in the 40s and 50s were compounded by the pharmacist as opposed to today. He would sit down and have a conversation with the person. It would usually be someone in their family was ill or they were feeling poorly or they were seeing a doctor, but they had a disease that was progressing. He would, in a very soft, caring, empathetic way, talk it out with them. And I could see the effect that he had on them because he cared. And that to me is, you know, when you elevate it a bit to the point where not only do you care, but you actually can do something as a physician. That, to me, just cemented it in me that I wanted to be a doctor. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that. So, I mean, obviously your career isn't what you had planned. So what did you envision would be your career going into yeah. medical school? Oh, I, I was firm. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to finish my residency. I wanted to go down to the NIH for three years to learn and get my boards in infectious diseases and clinical immunology. I wanted to go back to the New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center, which is now Weill Cornell, and do a chief residency and do what was the standard back then. Go from your chief residency into private practice in one of the private practices that are strewn along First Avenue, Second Avenue, Park Avenue, 
and the 60s and 70s, which is where the, the, the physicians who are the senior attendings on the wards, when I was a student, when I was an intern, when I was a resident, when I was chief resident. So I wanted to be like them. So you envisioned yourself hanging up your shingle on, on the east side. And, and, and it works in a teaching capacity as an attending at the New York Hospital. I didn't mean just sitting in an office and only doing that. I'm talking about being the attending for a month or two of the year, making rounds in the morning, taking care of really sick patients that required hospitalization rather than just a complete office practice. And you went to the NIH and there was this nascent field of human immunology and you began to use cancer drugs. Nobody used cancer drugs for non-cancer patients then. So let's talk about what happened for you there. What was that like and who these patients were? I went down there as an infectious disease fellow, but as part of the training, you were part of the infectious disease consultant for the rest of the institutes, the most important institute of which was the National Cancer Institute, because obviously they were developing the cancer chemotherapies that were inducing remissions in Hodgkin's disease and acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So they were really blasting patients with combinations, things that included a drug called cyclophosphamide. So we went up there and would do infectious disease consultations simultaneously putting me in charge of a group of patients that had inflammatory vasculitides, particularly patients which was then called Wegener's granulomatosis. And what happened is that we had people who had an aberrant auto-inflammatory response, and they were being treated with steroids alone, the known anti-inflammatory immunosuppressive drug. And 98% of the patients died. So we were in a very desperate situation. So we got the idea when we were making rounds on the patients in Cancer Institute, because we were called up there in order to do an infectious disease consult, because they would get blasted with chemotherapy to kill the cancer They had the secondary effect, unwanted, but inevitable, of wiping out your bone marrow, which put you at a high risk of an opportunistic infection. What it was is that it was all or none with the cancer drug. The idea we had is we don't want an all or none phenomenon. We want to lower the level of immune competence, but we don't want to lower it so much when it gets below a certain level, the risk of an opportunistic infection leading to perhaps death is high. So how do you treat someone who has an inflammatory disease, not a cancer, with a cancer drug? You do it with a dose that's low enough to hopefully suppress the aberrant immune response, but not strong enough to make the white count go below the critical level. Almost miraculously, 93% of the individuals went into complete remission of their disease. Can you just explain to the listeners, people thought you were nuts. This was revolutionary and also people advised you against it. My response to them was, what is the mortality rate of the disease? 98%. Okay, so if you 
don't treat them with something daring and bold. They're going to die anyway. And when you're dealing with a disease that's inevitably fatal, you have to be bold. You can't sit back and just business as usual and that you could almost predict is not going to work. So what's your choice? Try something that might seem eyebrow raising, but in fact, if you do it correctly, almost miraculously, 93%, they were all one after the other going into remission, one after the other after the other. Then everybody went from criticism to, oh my God, you've done it. You've actually induced a formerly lethal disease into remission. You'd been at the NIH for about 13 years when America became aware of a new epidemic, um, which didn't have a name at first and then became AIDS. And I saw your official report of the epidemic in the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report was published on June 5th, 1981. Do you remember what went through your mind when you were learning about this? Well, it it took place in two phases because the first MMWR came out in June. That was five otherwise previously healthy young gay men who presented in Los Angeles with uh, pneumocystis pneumonia. And I saw that. I said, boy, this must be a fluke. They probably ingested some drug, some popper of somewhat to enhance sexual satisfaction. And that maybe, you know, suppress their immunity support. I thought it was going to be a one-off. Then exactly one month later in July of 1981, uh, there was the second MMWR. This time 26 otherwise previously healthy, young, curiously all gay men, not only from Los Angeles, but from San Francisco and New York City, who not only had pneumocystis, but had Kaposi sarcoma, and a number of other opportunistic infections. And when I saw that second MMWR, that changed my life. I said, oh my God, this is a brand new disease. You know, there's no such thing as brand new diseases, <laughs> but this is a brand new disease. And I made a decision then that again, even my mentors discouraged me from doing that because they said, wow, you're on the peak of this incredible trajectory what are you doing? I said, I'm going to turn around and pivot completely the direction of my career and focus entirely on studying this mysterious disease without a name. That's when I just laid down one spear and picked up another. So let's talk about that time. The patients you cared for, you were unable to save. What was that like for you and how did it inform your career? Well, it was the darkest period of my professional career, it was the contrast from what I had been doing up to that point. So from 1972 until 1981, my career was on a very, very sharp upward trajectory. And all of my patients who thought they were going to die, when they got on my protocol, more than 90% of them went into remission. So it was all good news. And in other words, you walk into a room, you tell the patient's mother, their wife, their husband, Everything is going to be okay. We'll put them on my protocol. There's a 90% chance they're going to do fine. And 90 plus percent of them actually did really very well. Then all of a sudden you go into a cohort of patients where no matter what you did, virtually with few exceptions, every single one of them died a very difficult, painful death. You try to treat the opportunistic infections. 
but it was like putting a Band-Aid on a hemorrhage because it was whack-a-mole. Their immune system was destroyed by this unknown virus, and you would treat them for one opportunistic infection, and then another one would pop up, and then another one until finally one would kill them. And it was one of those things where it is very tough, you know, when you care about patients, getting back to what I said a bit ago of what drove me into medicine is not only to care for your patients, but to care for your patients. And generally, when you're doing something positive, you make rounds, you see the patients get better and better every day. It was totally the opposite with HIV. You'd make rounds on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, by the time you got to Friday, they were much worse on Friday than they were on Monday. They were wasting away because of uncontrollable diarrhea. They had pneumocystis, they had sarcoma that completely disfigured them and really had both a physical and a terrible psychological effect on them. And that's all you did every single day, one room to the other. I want to talk about how your experience, how that experience, the patients and starting to get therapies led to you working closely with the same AIDS activists who were parading around with not so flattering effigies of you on the streets and surrounding your offices to protest the lack of attention to this deadly virus. Well, the interaction with the activists was really transformational without a doubt. And by transformational, I mean that we were in an era where the biomedical research and regulatory authorities had an approach towards clinical trials and the testing of drugs that were time-honored and worked well for a lot of other diseases. But HIV AIDS was very, very different because you had a disease that had no therapy and was killing virtually everyone. And what the activist community wanted to do was to gain the attention of the so-called highfalutin scientists and regulatory people to allow them to have a voice in the design of the clinical trial and the scientific agenda and the push to even get more resources. The scientific community and the regulatory community ran away from them because they were very provocative. They were very disruptive. They were very iconoclastic. And they were that way because nobody was listening to them. So the empathy in me really came out. And I said to myself, you know, instead of running away from these people and rejecting them because of how disruptive they were, even when they're putting your head on a spike and saying, you know, Fauci, you're killing us and yada, yada, and just stop and listen for a moment to what they were saying. And when you listen to what they were saying, it absolutely made perfect sense. And I said to myself, holy mackerel, if I were in their shoes, I would be doing exactly what they were doing. And that opened the dialogue. So instead of becoming confrontational, we actually sat down and spoke about what it was that they wanted, what kind of a seat at the table do they want, what kind of an influence on the pharmaceutical companies and on the regulatory process would they want. And we didn't all of a sudden become Gumbaya on the first week or month or year. It was a gradual process of first complete antagonism and confrontation that led to, well, let's at least talk to, hey, you're making sense to, hey, you know, our goals are about the same. We're just coming at it from different angles to let's cooperate and collaborate to, hey, we kind of like each other. And that's when we became friends, which now to this day, 
the very activists that were disrupting the NIH campus and the FDA campus are some of my closest personal friends now, 40 years later. And what happened here where the patient voice was suddenly involved, suddenly a part of regulatory, of approval, of clinical trials? How did that change the way we do business today? It added another dimension to it. Remember, there there are certain criteria that the FDA, I believe, does a very good job at of making sure they get uh, interventions in the forms of drugs and vaccines and diagnostics to the American public in a way that is based in science, but also effective and safe. They do a good job on that. However, what the activists lent to that was an appreciation of the need, given the circumstance of the disease, to have a greater degree of flexibility to access. And that's where the concept of compassionate use came in. Compassionate use became an established paradigm during the HIV AIDS pandemic. So I want to understand about PEPFAR, the president's plan for AIDS relief established in 2003. This was a game changer for American health policy. And before PEPFAR, you made your first trips to Africa where so many people were dying of AIDS, even though in the U.S. we had many years of antiretroviral treatment that enabled most people to live with HIV. Tell us about those visits and what you saw and what happened. It was an evolution over multiple visits. In 1996, the first reports of the triple combination, which was the core drug of that, was the protease inhibitor, did something that we had not seen before. Namely, it brought the level of virus to below detectable and sustained it at below detectable, leading to what became known as the Lazarus effect. People essentially could lead lives that were approaching normal. It became very clear to me that when I would go to Africa, I would make rounds with my colleagues in places like uh, Uganda and uh, South Africa and places like that. And I would make rounds and I would see wards full of persons with HIV, with the doctors standing around the bedside that gave me a deja vu. Back then, I was watching all my patients die because we did not have any drugs. Not that we had drugs and we're not giving it to them. We didn't have any drugs. Then fast forward, 2000, 2001, 2002, I go to Africa and I'm making rounds on the ward when we have plenty of drugs for the developed world and those same docs, they're in the same painful situation I was in the 1980s where their patients are dying in front of them and they can't do anything except maybe treat one or two of the opportunistic infections. Over that period of time, it became clear to me that we have to do something. Simultaneously, the president of the United States also felt that way. The president was George W. Bush. And he called me in together with Tommy Thompson, who's the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. And we went to Africa on a fact-finding mission at the time that a drug that could be given in a single dose to a pregnant woman at the time of labor and to the child right after birth could diminish dramatically the transmission of mother to child of HIV infection. And I went down there and looked around and spoke to a bunch of people and felt 
that if we could get $500 million, we could probably get enough drug that we could literally stop mother-to-child transmission, which was a big, big problem. So I came back in April of 2002, and I presented that to President Bush, and he liked it. and said, this is a great idea. Let's go ahead and do it. And I thought that was it. Job done, finished, go home, back. But that wasn't finished because as soon as we finished presenting, as we were getting ready to break up, he grabbed uh, Josh Bolton, who was his deputy chief of staff at the time, and he brought me over and he said, listen, this is a great plan, but I want something much more transforming and accountable. And I want to have it so that it's beyond just mother-to-child transmission. And he said, because we really do have a moral responsibility that people should not die of a disease that you can treat and prevent only because of where they happen to live. So with that as the marching order, I went back to my office in Bethesda, Maryland, and we started putting together uh, the plan that I wasn't sure he was going to accept because it was going to cost $15 billion over five years to treat 2 million people, prevent 7 million infections and care for 10 million people. I put the plan in front of the president and he bought it. And he said, we're going to announce it at the State of the Union address. And that's what he did on January 28th, 2003. And that's how we had PEPFAR. The AIDS epidemic marked the beginning of your role really in the political world. You advised seven presidents, starting with Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, didn't mention the word HIV or AIDS for much of his presidency. So what did you learn about advocacy and working politically to make real changes happen among those that held the most power? Yeah, the first thing is to stick with the science. You're a scientist, you're going to get involved in policy, but don't get involved in politics. There's a big difference between policy and politics. Stay out of that realm of politics. If you're going to be successfully advising seven presidents, and they're not all going to be Democrats and they're not all going to be Republicans. You're going to have to deal with both sides of the aisle at the executive level. I stuck with the science and I stayed out of any ideology. Everything I did, every advice I gave to whether it was Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush or Clinton or George W. Bush or Obama or Trump or, or Biden or any of the others. It was just given the advice based on science, knowing full well that when you're dealing with a moving target like HIV or a real moving target like COVID, the science is going to direct you to change your opinion, change your recommendation, change your advice according to what the current scientific approach towards a particular disease is showing you with regard to evidence and data. But I guess what I'm wondering, when you went to the White House, if you will, and you're hearing pushback, bad policy about to happen, people maybe about to be hurt by it. How do you square with that? Or how did you square with that? Uh, just like I said, you stick with the science because, you know, it, it was only in that very unique situation that I was in during one of the administrations that things were said that were not true and they were not based on science. And I felt that I had a responsibility for my own personal and professional integrity to do something that was, it was very uncomfortable. I have a, an extraordinary amount of respect 
for the office of the presidency. It's not fun. It doesn't feel good to have to get up, you know, at a press conference in front of, you know, many, 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 many millions of people watching it and to essentially contradict the president because somebody sitting in the rows in the press asks you a question. You've got to give the right answer, even though it's contradictory to what the president just said. I didn't like that, but I had to do it. And I had to do it because of my responsibility to the American public. My responsibility is not to a political party and not to a president, it's to the American public. And that obviously, you know, created an extraordinary amount of enmity, even to the point of hate of me on certain segments in the population. So how was this virus, the COVID-19 virus, different from anything that you had ever dealt with before in your career? It was truly a global pandemic of a virus that we had never had any experience with. It was a moving target because never would we have imagined that we would have a burst of a global infection, which everyone thought would peak when the winter was over, it would go away. Similar to other outbreaks, that was not the case. It was unprecedented in every respect. We had the evolution of different variants. We're into our fourth year now of the outbreak. That is completely unprecedented. It wound up killing over a million Americans. We've never experienced that before since 1918 with the pandemic flu. There was some good news about all of this is the incredible rapidity in which we developed a vaccine that was highly effective and safe. Now we have a virus that requires boosting of the vaccine in order to keep the level of protection against severe disease very high. It's no secret that this pandemic has fueled a growing war against you personally. Right. Death threats on you and your family, pummeling by lawmakers, including President Trump, hate messaging and social media and beyond lawsuits. How have you been able to navigate this? Well, you just do it. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, there's nothing that you're going to change. You're not going to change society. You've got to live with it and stick by your principles. Stick by being truthful. Don't get involved in conspiracy theory. People are going to say crazy things, and they do that every single day. If you focus on that, you get distracted from your job, and that's not what you want to do, because then the conspiracy theorists win. Do your job, stick with the science, and that's it. What do you see as the future of the COVID pandemic in terms of what life will be like and what is needed moving forward? When you look at what we have in society now, we have enough people that have been infected, enough people that have been vaccinated and boosted that unless we get a big surprise, like a variant, that's way, way, way different than what we've seen right now. I think we're going to gradually enter into a situation where the level of infection is going to get low enough that it won't be disruptive of the social order. Right now, 500 deaths a day is not that level that I would find acceptable. I think we've got to get much lower than that. I don't think that there's a chance that we're going to eradicate it, and I don't think we're going to eliminate it. We're going to have it around but hopefully by a combination of vaccination, booster, hybrid immunity, and even treatment of infections of people that we can lower the threat of this to the point where it doesn't disrupt us. That's where I think we're going to be pretty soon. What do you still hope to accomplish in your career and in your life? I hope to inspire a younger generation to get into science and public health and public service and I'm not proud of, nor do I brag about the fact that I haven't taken a vacation in literally decades. (laughs) That's not a good thing. That's not a positive thing. But I really feel that I want to, and I'm ready to be able to take a little bit more time off 
particularly, you know, spending time with my wife, you know, go on a trip with my wife and perhaps even with my whole family. I mean, the people who are my dear close friends always advise me and still to this day say, don't overcommit. Now is not the time to overcommit. So I have to keep sort of hearing that refrain in my mind over and over again when people ask me to do things. Right, because it's definitely not in your DNA for sure. No, I have to fight my own. I have to suppress the gene expression. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck on that one. So I'd like to end by going back to your patients, Dr. Fauci, where all this began from the very first ones at NIH in the late 1960s with autoimmune diseases to those with HIV, Ebola, COVID. What can researchers clinicians, policymakers, all of us learn from your years caring for those patients and how that's fueled all that you've done over this extraordinary career of yours. A career that continues to touch so many of our lives. What do you want us all to take away from that work? Well, you know, there are many career paths that people follow. What I would like people to realize, science is a wonderful discipline. It opens up vistas of understanding and roadways to intervention for things that you never would have imagined, that if you keep working at it, you succeed, that what was available for us in the field of diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines when I first started, compared to what we have right now, is just extraordinary. It's breathtaking, the advances that have been made. So I like to encourage people, if they have any inclination to go into this field, that it can be extraordinarily gratifying for yourself and contributory to society. That's Dr. Anthony Fauci, who retired from the NIH after 54 years there, 38 of them running the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's good to be with you. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. Next time, AI in medicine. It's considered the new frontier. Computer algorithms that help doctors do their job better and improve the health of their patients. But who do these algorithms actually serve? You know, bias in AI is really this dirty secret of healthcare. We think AI is going to solve our problems, but real-world bias will be replicated in AI and scaled at a level we haven't seen before. We're going to end up with not only the same problem of disparities, but widening it. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum.